open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. Our focus will be on 6, 6 through 10. I'll be reading chapter 5 and verse 13 through 6, 10. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the law are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit Reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, We have, as sinners, been born with hearts of stone, and we have sown to the flesh habitually and naturally. The weed of sin grows easily, and only by your grace, only by the seed of the gospel have our hearts been transformed made fertile, so that fruit may abound unto you. 
And so, Father, we plead your grace that we might mortify the flesh, that we might cultivate walking in the Spirit to the glory of the One who has so saved us. That glory may further redound unto you. So send your Spirit now, because flesh can do nothing here. And bless the preaching of your word to the magnifying of your Son, in whose name we ask this. Amen. If the book of Galatians is a farm, that farm has two fields. In fact, this is how Paul handles all of his letters. There's the indicative field or the declarative field of the fruit of God's salvation in Christ, the free grace of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the first part of this letter. And then it's followed by the imperative field of freedom-based, spirit-empowered obedience towards God, chiefly as love towards our neighbor, and chiefly as love towards the body of Christ. Without the first field, the second field is a desert. If there is no grace, love will not grow. Without the first field of grace, there's nothing in the second field. The field of salvation and the field of works are related to one another in an opposite way in opposite ways in this you cannot grow something in the field of works and then transplant it to the field of salvation it won't grow there but what's grown in the in the field of salvation will bountifully grow when you plant it in the field of works that's the order the the imperative or the declarative field first and then the excuse me, the indicative or the declarative field first, and then the imperative field. We've come to the edge of this second field now, and Paul means to cultivate love right up to the very edge. But these final commands, they're all continuing this spirit-empowered, freedom-based expression of love, but they're all doing so using the metaphor of agriculture. So the first command, the one who has taught the word, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. You might find a strict translation as good reformed Protestants. You might find a a strict translation of this intriguing. Let the one who is catechized the word share all good things with the one who catechizes. That's a transliteration of the Greek. In those two terms. Now, if, if any of these commands stick out like a green thumb or like a watermelon among strawberries, it's this one because it doesn't seem as directly related to what's preceded it or what follows it. And then further, where's that farming metaphor that I promised? Well, I think with this one, it's assumed. I think that Paul's audience would have naturally connected sharing and sowing. And 
I, I think that because of the, Paul, the way Paul often uses that metaphor elsewhere for that specific analogy. So we go to Corinthians, chapter, 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so, right there, same analogy, and the, the emphasis is giving, sharing in that way. Paul, in this passage, does want to apply the principle of sowing and reaping much more broadly, but not to the exclusion of this kind of sowing that he's speaking of in verse 6. All these commands are immersed in this context of walking by the Spirit, loving expressing love to one another. So they're all immersed in that. And they're, they're immersed in that in contrast to the pride of flesh that just cares and is concerned about self. So from this, I think you can see it's not odd to find this plant growing here. It's not odd. It's not out of place. But the question is, why did Paul plant it here? He could have planted a variety of things, all these, all these species of love that he could have planted here. Why, did, why this particular one? Why did, why did he think this one necessary to be planted here? We're left to guess because no inspired explanation is given, but I think a good guess can be made, and that's due in part. What led me along this trail was Luther. So, Here's his reflection on it. Here Paul is preaching to hearers that they should share all good things with their preachers. I often used to wonder why the apostle was so diligent in commanding the churches to provide for their preachers. For in the papacy, I saw everyone contributing with great generosity for the construction of magnificent churches, for the increase in the income and growth in the revenues of those who dealt with sacred things. Thus, the social position and the wealth both of the bishops and the other clergy increased so much that everywhere they had possession of the best and most fertile lands. And so it seemed to me unnecessary for Paul to command this when the clergy were not only receiving donations of every good thing in abundance, but were actually becoming rich. So as a Roman Catholic monk, as a, as a legalist, he looked out and he saw Rome, and he said, this doesn't make any sense. Why Paul is saying this as he's looking at Rome, this makes no sense. And whenever he became a Protestant, he not only stood the first part of Galatians, justification by faith alone and Christ alone, he not only understood the first part of Galatians better, he understood the second part of Galatians better. He understood both fields, and he began to see why this was planted here, I think. He continues, Formerly, when wicked and false doctrine was taught, the Pope became an emperor, and the cardinals and bishops became kings and princes of the world. So abundant was their prosperity derived from the patrimony of Peter, who claimed not to have any silver or gold, hmm, Acts 3.6, and from so-called spiritual goods. But now that the gospel has begun to be preached, those who confess it are about as rich as the apostles once were. What gives? Why might this be? Paul's already told you, has he not? The legalist gives out of selfish ambition. It's all pride-centered. 
he, why, why were those indulgences being purchased from Rome to build St. Peter's Basilica? It wasn't because they thought, let's build a big church so people come to see the... Why were they buying those? For fire insurance. Because they didn't want to go to hell. They weren't concerned about God. They were concerned about their own skin. And so the legalist will give for that reason. If righteousness can be bought, there's money to be given. But freedom is abused. Remember, all this has been set up. All these commands about, using, about loving your neighbor have been set up about not abusing your freedom that you have in Christ. Chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 13. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so Luther continues. Our people have been set free from these and endless other exactions by the gospel. But they are so far from being grateful for this freedom that they've been, they have been changed from prodigal donors, liberal donors, to thieves and robbers who will not give even a pittance either for the gospel or for its ministers or for the holy poor. So here's my thesis. Luther's situation so mirrored the first part of Galatians concerning justification that I think... What Luther is seeing in his time concerning the second field in this particular command, I think there's very likely a mirror happening in Galatia. And you add to this that the false teachers have come in and they're touting legalism and where might the money be going now? Don't give to those free gospel preachers, free, the, the, those who are heralding the free grace of God. Where's the money going now? I, I would guess towards the false teachers. Now, like Luther, I don't look forward to preaching passages like this. He wrote, All this pertains to the topic of support for ministers. I do not like to interpret, teach, preach such passages, for they seem to commend us as in fact they do. In addition, it gives the appearance of greed if one emphasizes these things diligently to one's hearers. Nevertheless, people should be taught about this matter in order that they may know what they owe both in respect and support to their preachers. Now Luther, like Paul, seems to teach on this doctrine more so out of concern for others than concern for self. Now, if we as as good Reformed Protestants, can miss the link between sowing and sharing, that's in between verses 6 and 7. If we miss it, the prosperity preacher does not. If we're shy to preach on it, they're eager to preach on it. They promise a hundredfold return on monies given to their ministries. They don't understand the kind of harvest that's so often being spoken of in all these passages. Um, that what they're doing is they're sowing in greed and expecting to gratify that greed. They've not, they've not only gone wrong in what they're expecting harvest-wise, they've gone wrong in what they're sowing. Kate Bowler in her History of the Prosperity Gospel writes, Although there was little uniformity across the movement's diverse congregations, Several trends emerged. Tithing eclipsed the sermon, worship, and communion as the emotional peak of the service, as pastors pushed their audience to envision greater financial miracles. 
tithing became the new and chief sacrament. The Pope has his indulgencies, and Joel Osteen has his. And they're both about your own flesh. That's where they're sowing. They invert the priority that we see in Paul. In this letter of 149 verses, as man has divided it, we find this one small sentence concerning the support of ministers. They invert this order. For every 149 times that they talk about giving, you might, might, might find one verse, somewhat, kind of, maybe approximating the gospel, but now I think I'm being too generous concerning their ministry. Even so, if ministers are to be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God, they do have to touch on this. They have to speak on this. Because the Bible isn't silent. You remember whenever Jesus sent out the 72, he gave this instruction. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. And this is what Paul picks up on whenever he tells Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. A minister should not be treated worse than a good ox. Now, you shouldn't feed lazy. Don't feed lazy. But if you got a good ox, what you get out of that is more good work. You get more work out of the well-fed ox. Paul again alludes to this uh, in uh, the words of our Lord in Corinthians. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now, I want to say, as far as they're going wrong on the sowing and reaping, not understanding the harvest, that Paul says, if we sow spiritual, we should reap material. And if you, show, if you sow uh, material... What kind of harvest should you be expecting? A spiritual harvest, you see? Now, if we have sown spiritual things among you, and it is too much, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, these instructions are balanced by others, such as the qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3, where the overseer is not to be a lover of money. Or 1 Peter 5, where we're told that elders are to shepherd the flock, and among the ways they're not supposed to do that is not for shameful gain, but eagerly, to eagerly do it. And so, while true shepherds are not hired, they are not hirelings, such that then actually the sheep are leading the shepherd, they're not to be thought of as hired, they are to be supported. The shepherd is not supposed to fleece the flock, he's to feed the flock, but then the sheep shouldn't have any problem giving up some wool so that that shepherd stays warm. The church, here's D.A. Carson, I think he strikes the balance well. The church does not pay its ministers, 
Rather, it provides them with resources so that they are able to serve freely. In practice, this means that the ideal situation occurs when the church is as generous as possible, the ministers do not concern themselves with material matters, and are above selfish interests. Ministers should serve freely, no matter what. There are sheep, and they need to be fed, and they're God's sheep, and He serves freely. And the church should give freely. So the, the way this works is whenever generosity and love are being paramount on both sides of the equation. And neither is concerned for self. Next, we're commanded, do not be deceived. Deceived in what way? Deceived concerning this principle of sowing and reaping. The principle of sowing and reaping was sown into creation whenever creation was sown. On the third day, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. You cannot plant potatoes and reap pears. God will not be mocked. The joke will be on you. But we're not so foolish as to think that. are No, we're more foolish. We think you can plant a monkey and get a man. We think if you sow a boy in just the right soil, and he really wants to, you can harvest a woman. But God will not be mocked. Look around. If, they, if you look in the mirror with real eyes that have any kind of common sense, you'll see you're the joke. God will not be mocked. You cannot violate this principle. It won't happen. He does not allow it. He will not be mocked. The joke will always be on us. We will be found ridiculous. You cannot sow sin and reap life. God told Adam the tree of knowledge, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We have been trying to eat what is forbidden ever since and expecting health and happiness. All sin is a mockery of God, attempted mockery, but the joke is on us. Ralph Venning writes, in short, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of His mercy, the jeer of His patience, the slight of His power, the contempt of His love, as one writer prettily expresses this ugly thing. We may go on and say it is the upbraiding of His providence, the scoff of His promise, the reproach of His wisdom. And as is said of the man of sin, it opposes and exalts itself above all that is called God. And all above all that God has called, so that it, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing itself as it were God. And he will not be mocked. Both the legalist and the libertarian sow to the flesh in this attempted mockery. One uses precision equipment. Precision farm equipment to sow just so accurately and accordingly to all the rules and regulations of how it's supposed to be sown, and the other freely cast. But both are sowing to the flesh. The legalist mocks God 
thinking that he can somehow merit favor after having sinned against him. And the libertine, the antinobian, sins by presuming upon grace. But here, Paul, I think, especially has in mind the libertarian, the antinomian violation of this principle of sowing and reaping. Because again, this has been prefaced with, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Using your freedom from sin as a reason that you can sin is to mock that which is most precious to the Father. The blood of His Son by which He has promised redemption. So let there be no deception. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. This is an echo of what Paul said earlier. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to keep you from doing the things that you, would, you want to do. Verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourself if you're just consistently sowing to the flesh. that you will reap anything other than death. If all you are sowing is seeds of sin in the field of the flesh, is there any spirit? Here's how Paul teases this out in Romans. Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here. Freedom from the law and its legal demands. He goes on. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Liberty from the guilt of sin under the law is coupled with liberty from the dominion of sin. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for indeed it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. For those who are under the flesh, those who are under the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Churches are full of mockery of these truths because they're full of sin and full of promises of peace. Peace when there is no peace. Now, none of this is to tip the hat to the legalist. Salvation sows to the Spirit. No salvation, no spirit, no sowing. The only thing the legalist sows to is his flesh. No salvation, no spirit, no sowing. And the salvation we're talking about is salvation by grace alone. This is not about working for your salvation. This is about your salvation working. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation. Not work for your own salvation. Work it out. If you have it, it works. If you're never sowing to the Spirit, likely this is the answer. There is only flesh. Saints, do not mock attemptedly the God of your salvation. He will not be mocked. Do not tolerate sin. Do not sow to the flesh. Certainly there will always be weeds. Always be pulling them. At the smallest possible opportunity. Be pulling them. Do not sow them intentionally. And when you do. Intentionally and immediately. Pluck them out. Do not water them. Do not fertilize them. Repent of them again and again and again. Mortify them. Kill them. Spray them with Roundup regularly. Salt the soil of your flesh until nothing can grow there. Expose your flesh to the blazing glory of the sun because sin is odd in comparison to other plants. It grows in the dark and it shrivels and dries in the beauty of the sun. Remember John Owen's exhortation, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Show mercy toward other sinners. Show none to your own sin. You cannot grow a little sin. Whenever you think you're growing a little sin, that's the kind of sin you keep in the dark and you keep private and that's where it grows. That's where it thrives. Again, Owen succinctly warns, sin always aims at the utmost. Sin always wants to grow highest and spread widest. It is an invasive weed. It is a pervasive weed that will swallow up all other life if it can. Instead, so to the Spirit. How's that done? 
Well, Romans 8 already gave you a big clue because it talks about setting your mind on the things of the flesh versus setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Couple that with Colossians 3, where you see the same kind of put off the old man, put on the new man language that corresponds to the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And it's all prefaced in this way in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, do you see the first field there? If God has done a work such that there's life where there was only death, Then, second field, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the mind that's been renewed sows to the Spirit By thinking on where the Spirit wants to take our thinking, which is Christ. But then the mind that's thinking on Christ, as we've seen here, thinks about the body of Christ. And so you begin sowing by thinking on Christ and His Word, renewing your mind. And as you do that, another way that you sow to the Spirit is to act on it and love your brother. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable perfect. Read your word. The word of God. Read the word of God. Adore Christ. Repent of your sin against so beautiful a Christ. And love, deny yourself then, and love your neighbor. Repeat. And in that way, you will mortify the field of the flesh. And you'll cultivate and fertilize the new man. And the fruit of the Spirit will be born. Final command, following this, makes perfect sense. It's easy to grow weary in this. So you see not only the aptness of the command, but of the farming metaphor. It's easy to grow weary. Waiting for harvest. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Weeds grow so easily and so quickly. Do you want to grow weeds? That's easy. Do nothing. Farming now, even more so in the ancient world, was not simply a matter of waiting for the harvest, but one of hoping for a harvest at all. 
For every good year, there would be several lean years, and then always the threat of famine, drought. Your sanctification is slow. That means your neighbor's is slow. Because what we're talking here about is not just sowing seeds that are about our being sanctified, but sowing seeds, hoping for sanctification in the lives of others and salvation in the lives of others. Beware of being patient with yourself and easily irritable with your neighbor. While we can see rapid growth in newborn saints, and it's so encouraging and heartening when we do, is it not? That season rapidly passes. God grows Christians like He does redwoods. The most majestic things are long in the growing. And God means to conform us to the majesty of Christ. Perhaps it's only slow because the objective is so high. Whenever you're looking for periods of growth in your life then, don't compare yourself to where you were yesterday. Look over periods of one year, two, five, ten, the, the, the longer patterns, and look at the trajectory of growth in your life. Favorite illustration of this is David Pallison says the, the, the sanctification is like a man walking upstairs with a yo-yo. If you compare where you are today with where you were yesterday, according to that yo-yo dip, you could be at a lower point than you were last year. Whenever you're looking at the fruit, you're looking for fruit of the seeds you've sown in others' lives, trust that in due season there will be a harvest, knowing that the due season might be the harvest. Whenever wheat and tares are separated by the Lord of the harvest, it's all His seed. We water, we plant, the rest is all His. So do it with faith in His Word and His purposes. William Carey labored for seven years before he saw his first convert. Take Adoniram Judson, he labored for six. But then after 12 years, there are only 18 converts. He was one of the first missionaries sent by America, Baptist missionary sent to what, is, what was then Burma. He constantly dealt with sickness and disease. 12 years, 18 converts, and at that point, he's put in prison and he's suffering miserably, not just with sickness, but being tormented. While his wife and child are destitute in this tropical environment. Altogether, he would lose two wives and seven children. He would know despair and despondency. He would grow weary. But he, by grace, persevered. And the fruit is still 
multiplying unto the Lord from the seeds that he planted. As far back as 1982, the World Christian Encyclopedia said the largest Christian force in Burma is the Burmese Baptist Convention, which owes its origin to the pioneering activity of the American Baptist missionary Adniram Judson. Now known as Myanmar, the most recent published edition of Operation World 2010 says that though the population is largely Buddhist, 80%, the largest force there is the Myanmar Baptist Convention made up of 4,530 churches with over a million members. You will never know the full extent of your labors. Spurgeon was converted by some person in the pew that preached because the minister couldn't make it to the church that day. He was clueless as to the fruit that would come of his simple, mediocre attempt at dealing with the Word of God that day. It's not your sowing. It's the seed sown. It's the gospel that's the power of God into salvation. When you sow that seed, you have no clue the fruit God might bring forth from it. Consider the wonderful story of Luke Short. It was an old farmer in colonial America. At 103 years of age, which is astounding to think of in colonial America, is it not? At 103, he's in his farm, and he recalls a sermon that he heard John Flavel, the renowned Puritan, preach some 85 years earlier. And by the seed of the gospel, God did the miracle of transforming his heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Life was. And the divine irony further is that he was named Short. On his tombstone is the epitaph. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. This principle goes broader than evangelism, though. Every good deed done as a fruit of God's work in us by the Spirit. All obedience to God is sure of an incalculably mighty, bountiful harvest. Growing rich in the fertile soil of the new earth where weeds and sin are no more. Do not grow weary, saints. In due season, you will reap. And so, do not grow weary for this reason. That you not lose, miss, 
an opportunity to do good. This good's to be done to all, but especially among the saints. Those who are of the household of faith. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves, but then Christ laid down this further command. We're to love the church as He loved the church and gave Himself for her. God makes His reign to fall on the just and the unjust, but His mercy floods the saints. So should it be with us. Cast the good seed of the gospel and the seed of your good works. Cast it liberally in every direction. But do be sure to plant it where you know God has made the soil fertile. So that fruit will abound into the glory of God. Because God is God, what is sown will be reaped. For the wicked, justice will be served. For the saints, justice already has been served on Christ. And because the seed of Christ was sown into this earth and burst forth with three days with life three days later, we who were dead have already experienced the fruit of that work in part. The resurrection spiritually of a dead man unto life. We are the fruit of God's salvation. And He will see us grown to maturity in Christ. Be assured, what God has sown will bear fruit. And if there's no fruit... He hasn't sown. If you're looking into your heart and there's no fruit, there's no spirit. He hasn't sown. And so I leave the libertine who is presuming upon his grace with this warning and simultaneously the saints with this comfort from John's first letter. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for because God's seed remains in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Father, for the soul here 
this morning that sees zero real fruit of your salvation. They may see works of the flesh and attempted righteousness. Or they may see a presumptuous libertarianism that thinks you'll love all. You'll save them. I pray your convicting grace now to show them the barren, stony, hard wasteland of their heart. And that they would trust nothing to themselves, but they would fall on you realizing that that the flesh cannot do anything pleasing unto you. And that they would rely not on themselves, but on Christ and His perfect work and His righteousness. And that their heart of stone would be made a heart of flesh. And that the fruit of the Spirit would be born, unto the, born out of their lives unto your glory, not their own. And for your saints, may we take comfort in this. That there is a harvest. That your word will bear forth fruit. That we need not grow weary. Because your spirit will empower us all along the way. We can trust you. So may we spread liberally the good seed of the gospel. Accompanied by good deeds of love. Genuine love. Spirit wrought deeds of love. Knowing that it's all done because you give. And then you give on top of your giving. All glory be to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.